Well, we're excited about that. I just have to say, kids, we're so thrilled. We have three priorities you told us that you want us as a church to be focusing on, and that is to um, reach the community with this good news of God's love and forgiveness and also to, to empower and, and to embrace the emerging generations. Kids, that's you. And we want to do this together, and you're here with us together doing that, so thank you. You may go now to your classes Unless you really want to stay to hear me preach. <clears throat> I think they're going to go to their classes. <clears throat> I say all that because I want to just remind us as we come to the end of this, like our fourth quarter for us as a church, this is our fourth quarter coming into the end of June. And I'm going to encourage you to be praying about this whole idea of generosity. How is God leading you um, as we seek to make up some ground as we come to the end? And we want to do so. And as we come to the end of this um, year, we would love to be in a great place to continue to fulfill the vision that God's placed in our heart to do those three things. And we're strategically, as a staff, working through those as not priorities, but as strategies that we are prioritizing as we look at the coming year. So I wanted to say that as we begin. I also wanted to share with you, I had a, an interesting day yesterday, both my wife and I. We had our two grandsons over. We have three, but we had two of them, and that's a handful right there. Um, they're about five and three around that age. And we had a great day together from eight to five, enjoyed being together, did all kinds of fun stuff. We played um, about every sport we could. We played hockey, we played soccer, we played basketball. And, and they actually even brought over these little, um, uh, this archery kind of set that has these, um, uh, what are the kind of little, uh, you lick them and they stick to, suction cup, suction cup very good. Some of you are parents or grandparents. These little suction cup arrows. And my grandson, at one point when I was shooting, he goes, no, Papa, Papa, you got to lick it. <laughs> and he promptly goes and gives it to me to lick. And I'm going, there is no way. I think I've already caught two diseases from you guys. Would you do it for me? Well, in the midst of all this playing and having fun, there, you know, as two little boys will do, I mean, I had an older brother two years, so I get it. They're scrambling for, I think, a ball, and and they got into an altercation. Fisticuffs. I mean, and, and I, as the ref kind of intervened, and I, I came in there, and I separated them. I took the one that was kind of kicking and brought that one aside, and I'm trying to think about how to love this child, connect with this child, help this child understand, and to at the same time set effective um, you know, boundaries and, and, and discipline for this one. Uh, those of you who are grandparents know exactly why, right? You're trying to do disciplining as just their parents would, and, and, and seeking to do that in itself is just a really good thing. I've been reading books like The Whole Brain Child, which has been really helpful understanding the development of the brain things we didn't have when we were kids. Okay, this is getting longer than I wanted to be, except for this. I was thinking through as I was doing that and then began to wrestle with my thoughts afterwards because that whole incident um, didn't go exactly as I'd planned. And I was wrestling, how do you love and bring understanding and in, in an emotionally charged situation, in a way that effectively sets boundaries and, and disciplines in a corrective way, that really deals with the heart, not just the behavior, right? As I thought about it, I thought, man, this is exactly what this message is about today. How does God deal with your sin and my sin? 
how does God deal with our selfishness? The kind of unacceptable desires and, and thoughts that end up in attitudes that spill out in behavior that hurts the people you love. What does God do? And so as I was thinking through that, I was led to a, a prayer and led to think, man, that's exactly what God wants, I think, to share this morning. So let's pray. Father, would you just open our hearts to understand more fully how deeply you love us and how that love at times may look like bad news, but is really good news as you deal with us in our hearts. Amen. I've been looking at this series, and it's really, it came out of the idea of the five swords of Christ. There's kind of five swords. This one's really a spear today. But even in the Old Testament, it, it could, the word piercing could refer to a sword. But we looked at this sword of grief. And, and in this time of, of, of passion and suffering in Jesus, we were reminded that we are not yet there fully where all this stuff has been dealt with. We will experience loss. And then how you experience that loss and what you do with that loss, how you allow God to help you to grieve through that. We have a culture that's a mess. We have church cultures that are a mess because we have leaders who are incredibly gifted, but they are in many ways very wounded deep within, and it doesn't show up till later, and then you see the result of it in their lives, and they're going shocked because we may disciple people in their heads, but we don't disciple them in their hearts and in, in, in the integration of their lives. And then it says, Mary, a sword will pierce your side. There will be grief. And, and with all this, there's confusion and we talked about that in the times of suffering. It, 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 there's this time when Jesus, if you don't have a sword, sell it, uh, sell your cloak and, and buy one. And then later he says, no, don't. And you're kind of confused in, in what maybe the Lord is saying. And the Lord's very clear, but we find ourselves in these kind of crisis situations where there's passion and suffering, confused. And then darkness. As they are in the garden and Judas kisses Jesus in and in that moment when they go to attack with violence, Jesus says, stop. I didn't mean this is the way to use the sword. And he says to them very clearly, uh, this is your hour, as he looks at these who have come to take him away when darkness reigns. And today we're going to be looking at this whole idea of sin. It continues this idea of what was found in Luke chapter 35 when Simeon says to Mary, um, your your heart, you will, a sword will pierce your soul. The fourth gospel, John, records that Jesus was pierced just like it was prophesied in the Old Testament. He, he tells us in, in John's gospel that, that Jesus is, is pierced as one who is um, bearing our transgressions. And so as you look at that, he says, you know, what you see on the cross was something that was prophesied a long time before that. In fact, if you go back, you'll see that it's alluded to in Psalm 22. And I won't go through all this. There's, there's in, in verse 16 of that Psalm, a thousand years before Jesus came, it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And then 250 years later, about 750 B.C., Isaiah has a prophecy, and his prophecy is a little more targeted because he says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And finally, 250 years after that, so now 500 years before Jesus comes, Zechariah, a prophet, 
comes forward and he says in the 12th chapter of, of, of verse 10, they will look on me, the one they have pierced. Let's stand together and we'll read John and then we'll read this passage in Zechariah. These things have happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken, and as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Zechariah 12, beginning with verse 10, going to chapter 13, verse 1, says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and grieves bitterly for him as one who grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, in this, on that day, the word day in the prophets is, is this idea of, of this day that is coming. I, I like the way the message, and we'll use this in, in, in the message a bit. It says, on the big day, which refers to the day of Christ's first coming as well as his second coming. It's kind of kaleidoscoped. He says, on that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be as great as the weeping of Harad Rimean. In the plain of Megiddo. And the land will mourn in each day by itself, with their wives by themselves, and the clan of the house of David, and their wives, and the clan of Nathan, and their wives, and the clan of the house of Levi, and their wives, and the clan of Shimei, and their wives, and all the rest of the clans, and their wives. And on that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants to Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. Thanks. You may be seated. So you need to know a little bit about Zechariah. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at the first verses 1 through 9, and I will quickly cover that. But Zechariah was a prophet who is a contemporary of a guy named Haggai. He comes around 500, um, just a few years before that King Cyrus is um, the one who was um, involved in bringing the first return of those who were in captivity back to Jerusalem. He has died. A new guy, Darius, takes place as the king, and he is now the king during this time when Zechariah is giving this prophetic word. And he says, on that big day, Verses 1 through 9, just kind of, you are going to be hemmed in, you are people who are going to be, there's just no hope, but on that big day, what it basically says is God will deliver you. It'll look like your life is lost, your people are lost, everything is lost. But verses 1 through 9 say, but on that big day, God will deliver you. Now, as you read Zechariah 10, verses chapter to chapter 13, verse 1, so 10 through 14 in chapter 13, verse 1, God, through the prophet Zechariah, tells them, this is how this deliverance comes. He basically, in these verses, says, there's four gifts I'm going to give you. I am going to give you this gift of conviction, a gift of urgency in the sense of prayer. I'm going to also then give you a gift of understanding, and I will all lead to faith, this gift of faith. And so as I was reading this and I was thinking about it, verse 10 starts, I will pour out. It's not a, he doesn't just dribble it out. He pours out. And using the house of David, the people of Jerusalem, he's not just, he's thinking here at the people of God. He's speaking to them in that day, but he's speaking to us in this day. And he says, I will pour out the spirit of grace. Now we often think of the spirit of grace as unmerited favor. And that isn't really, in my opinion, the best 
definition of the word grace. The best definition of the word grace is God's empowering presence. Okay? His ability for you to begin to understand how you are given unmerited favor. That's an aspect of it. But his empowering grace, he will pour it out. Now you think about it. If you are a people and you're in a place, and, and let's just say you're like my grandkids in I'm, you know, kind of trying to figure it out and God's trying to figure out how to deal with your sin. Because this is all about dealing with your sin. He's talking about the grief. He's talking about confusion and those other swords. He's talking about the darkness that's going to come. Now he's talking about sin. Next week we're going to talk about judgment. That's the next one. But he says, what do you do with this sin? And, and what God says is he doesn't immediately whack you. That's different than what you might think. God is this God who has understanding like you don't have any understanding of. You're, he's the perfect parent who his whole desire and goal is when you have sin and there's consequences, he is so patient and so loving that he seeks to help you understand because what he wants to do is not just curb behavior. He wants to transform your heart. And so the very first gift is this gift of grace. And the empowering presence of God's grace gives us the ability to see. It gives us the ability to see the situation, to see our condition. It it gives the ability, like he says in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 12, to see how trapped you are. It gives you conviction to understand how sin and your own selfishness Messes up your life and relationships. And it's not just a little bit, but it can destroy everything. And so the gift of grace is the gift of, or the spirit of grace here is the gift of conviction. And somehow he gives us in, in a moment of grace the ability to open our eyes to the truth about ourselves. Somehow he removes our defensiveness. Think about it. Your defensive posture keeps you from a true place of conviction. And, and when you're in that moment and, and, and you've been um, caught or, or you're in a situation where you realize your selfishness has been exposed and, and your response is, well, yeah, but that, it wasn't really that bad, right? Or, or you move to a defensive place where you say, well, it wasn't that big of a deal. And, and you've maybe heard this a lot. Well, it, I, I know that happened, but that's not my character. Uh, I was going to be a baloney. In fact, that is actually your character coming out. Because when you're in those moments, what comes out is your character. And what God is all about is transforming that character. So he gives you a spirit of grace to be able to help you remove the defensive posture. Think about the defensive posture you saw this last week, the Oscars and the slap that's been heard around the world, right? It is possible that Will Smith, and I'm not going to take sides here with Chris Rock or Will Smith. I'm just using this as an illustration, so... It is possible that Will Smith could have argued along this line. Quit being so self-righteous, all of you. This guy, Chris Rock, just insulted my wife. She's been dealing with alopecia areata. She's losing her hair. And this has been an incredibly tough battle. And, and especially, especially for black women, there's a whole kind of stuff you can read around this. Everybody knows she's been dealing with this, right? Okay, then maybe I shouldn't have slot box Chris Rock. You can hear Will Smith saying this. But don't forget, he instigated it. And I would have never been tempted to slap him if he would have kept his blank mouth shut. 
about my, you know, my wife's name. The word but means that you haven't fully come under conviction. You still do not have the gift of conviction. Spirit of grace needs to work more in your heart, in your life. And I can say this as a husband. I can say it in relationship to other workers or people that I'm close. The, the spirit of defensiveness, the moment it comes up, in the moment you deflect and say, hey, anything but I was wrong. Now you can talk about what may have the conditions and the situation that can lead you to That's a great thing to talk about later and to figure out because that's where you invite God to come in to help you set up your, your defenses so you don't do what you did. But the reality is, if I acted in a way and my behavior hurt my wife, I mean, you guys, any, anybody married knows this desire to be right, right? And, and the defensiveness that comes rather than just saying, you know what? What I did was wrong. It was unacceptable. And I own it. And I own it. Think about it. Is cheating on your spouse wrong? And so then, why do you hear responses like, I know I did what was wrong, but, but he never gives me any attention. Or, or sure, I shouldn't have cheated, but if she would just have loved me the way that I want to be loved. Right? The spirit of conviction which God gives as a gift is the ability to see ourselves by his grace without having to defend ourselves in any way to know that he deeply loves us and he sees what is in us and the unacceptable behavior and all the rest doesn't matter about anything out here. It matters about your own heart before him because when you do that and you receive the conviction and say, guess what? I am a sinner. I do selfishly look to myself first. I have learned how to reactively respond from my childhood on. And, and, and it's true. Many of the strategies that you respond with reactively are the very ones that kind of help keep you safe, but they're not the ones that help you today. They merely imprison you in that selfish response. Anybody get a yes to that? Right. So, no ifs, ands, and buts about it. In his situation, Will Smith, violence is wrong. And if it's conviction, he said, I need to deal with this, no matter what provoked me. Just think about it for a second. Can you do that in relationships with people? Defensiveness at any level will keep you stuck will not allow God's grace to begin to work in your heart to transform your heart. Doesn't allow us to move into a place of conviction that leads to the next gift, which is that of urgency. You see, what keeps us from a full sense of conviction is this tendency to continue to defend ourselves from what we would consider to be bad news. That's why I get it. You know, I'm talking to my wife, and we're walking along, and we've learned this process of what we call communicate to connect, and we've been trying to help other couples learn this. <clears throat> and and it's this little process where you walk through this thing, and, and she'll say to me, you know, can we um, kind of talk about, maybe have a do-over or talk about what happened yesterday? Immediately, I'm going, oh, man. And immediately, I'm going, okay. My goal here is to understand 
And to help God work in my heart what needs to be transformed. Regardless. Now there's a lot more to unpack around that so you can can think about it. Victory and spiritual growth begins when you clearly see what sounds like bad news is really good news. How wonderful that my wife, and, and I, I don't know, and maybe um, I'm generalizing, but often wife seems to fight for intimacy in a way that guys don't. I mean, honestly, when I've done counseling before, I would often ask wives and husbands, on a scale of 0 to 10, um, you know, 10 being the best and 1 not being good, um, I often ask the guys first, where is your marriage? Oh, it's seven, eight. I ask the wife, it's usually three, four. Where was I? Oh, um, so this, this idea, I'm so glad that, that I've begun to, and this is really something to work on, your attitude that says when bad news comes, I'm not going to look at it as bad news. Is there the, What's the good news that God is trying to get across to me in this? Can you imagine with a doctor, and some of you who are medical doctors here, if when you would come to a patient, they would see everything that you give them as just bad news? Okay, they come to you and they say, you know, I've been looking at some stuff, and I, I think there's something suspicious here. I think we may need to do an MRI or a CAT scan, or we might do some need to do some lab work and look at your blood. And immediately, go, oh, <laughs> are you kidding me? That doesn't sound like good news to me, right? I'm not going to do that. And then the, the doctor does the thing, and he comes back, and you find out if you're a person who understands that what your doctor's trying to do is share with you sometimes bad news that's really good news. And he comes back and he says, you know what? According to the lab work, we are so glad we caught this early. I'm so glad you came to, let's say, a dermatologist and said, we found this before it could have gotten worse. That's good news. In the spirit of conviction, the grace that God gives you if you're willing to receive it and actually let that work in your heart, is good news, as bad as it may make you feel. And I have to share with you, it's a, a pouring out of the Spirit of God because even conviction and the ability to receive it is a gift from God. Did you know that? And then he goes on and he says, um, here, he, he talks about what I call the gift of urgency because um, he says the, the actual Hebrew is the idea of supplication. Anybody supplicated lately? Come on. It, it's, this, it's this sense of, it's not just prayer. It's like you find in James that it says in the Greek, it's one of the oldest New Testament books, so they use a lot of Hebraism. It says he was praying and is praying. That's how, they didn't have a, a, an ability to give adjectives to it. So they, he was praying and praying. He wasn't just going, oh, Lord, thanks for this food. I'm really grateful for it. Thanks for this day and all that you give me. Amen. He was praying and is praying. He supplicated. He said, God, I see this in my heart. You've given me conviction. Thank you for the grace of allowing me to see it. Now I have this sense of, boy, here's supplication. Help. Help. These reactive tendencies, these habits of anger I have, whatever it may show up in your life, your addiction to want to medicate the pain within, they're, they're so natural. They're so hard to break. Help. It's just a call out to God that says, God, I, I have been poured out with conviction and I see what needs to be done and now I need you to do something. I need you 
And so Zechariah tells the people on that big day, guess what? God will do something. And when you read John 19, John is merely recording God did do something. If you look at verse 10, it's one of the most powerful statements of God's love to our condition. Our heart is diseased. We basically need a transplant. It purifies our desires, our thoughts, our attitudes, our actions. And it says this, they will look on me. Here's God saying, here, I hear your cry. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and mourn for him. This is a really powerful scripture, you guys. Some translations have actually tried to change. They will look on me. They will look on him. It doesn't say that in the Hebrew. It says they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and mourn for him. This is the voice of God. Basically, it's the clearest reference that God in this Yahweh in Jesus had his heart pierced for us. Back 500 years before it ever happened. God in Christ dies for you. God's son takes the consequences of every one of your inappropriate, unacceptable, bad behaviors in Christ for you. The anointed one of God comes to earth, lives a sinless life, and dies, is pierced, and we look on that. And we see it, and in it we'll see in a moment comes our salvation. But one of the gifts that come along with this is this idea of understanding. Some of you know because you follow Facebook pages, but I had put some things on there, and my brother has put some things on there, that he was diagnosed uh, recently uh, that both his kidneys are failing. Um, that's bad news, but there's good news, right? Because if you can get a kidney, and the whole idea of this whole thing is, you know, as Mayo works through it, and, and um, with Mayo, he's been posted this, and he's looking for the match, and there's all kinds of things like antigens and, and other important factors, blood types, etc. It's the idea that someone would give one kidney so that he could have a kidney to live. So there's, it's a pretty good even exchange, right? One for one. The story of Christ is that our hearts are diseased. They're not just actions stealing something from the cookie jar. There's a disease in there, so much so that it will cause failure, both now and forever, in our relationship with God and also in our relationships with others. And the story of Christ is that we need a new heart. Anybody know anyone who has two hearts? You don't say, here, take half of mine like you could with a liver. Our story, according to God's word, is this. Because our heart is diseased and it is riddled with sin and selfishness, it will not only kill you eternally, but it is killing you today and every day it continues to infect your relationships, your work, and your life. 
C.S. Lewis has this great quote, and I wish I would have written this one down, but it just it talks about it, when you look at your life and you see for what it really is, um, now it may be this far apart, but when you go out into eternity past, you see how far it spreads away from God. So your sin may look little here, but man, the consequences for eternity are beyond what you could imagine. You need a new heart, and Jesus gave that heart. His death so that you could live, which is the ultimate expression of love. His heart, spiritually, is the perfect match for your heart and every heart. And if you are under a conviction of knowing your sin, never repented of it, never have an understanding of the deep conviction that God, but by your grace, I'm lost, help. He says, help is here. 2,000 years ago on the cross, I gave a perfect match for you to place my heart in you. And now out of this heart, you will begin to have new desires. And those new desires will be transformed into thoughts. And those thoughts will begin to impact attitudes. And those attitudes will have actions. And yet, here's the thing. When you become a person who receives this heart of God, your life doesn't change automatically. It is one of these transforming effects that need to take place as you daily yield yourself to him. God begins to work through this new heart, and he begins to transform. He renews your mind, as it says in Romans chapter 12. By the renewing of your mind, he begins to start taking those reactive patterns as you... And this is not necessarily easy. Salvation... The new heart transplant is, is really easy in one sense. It's God, I need your heart. I need to, I need the fullness and, and understanding of that I have been wrong. I am the conviction. And with urgency, I ask you to do it. And God says, great, great. I did it on the cross. Receive it. You're forgiven. Now the work comes into, you continue to walk by faith and trust in God. But the work of sanctification is saying, God, I am going to yield myself like Jesus on the cross daily, dying to myself so that you might live in me. And when I do that, even the, you know, the whole idea of taking up your cross and denying yourself, those denial, some of those things that he calls in your life are the very things that changes the habits of reaction that lead to harmful behavior. And folks, we have had a way too thin of a gospel given to people. You can have all kinds of hands raised, praise God for that. But what needs to happen, the gospel is effective in this, that the person who raises their hand continues to raise their hand every day and says, God, I want to be inwardly transformed. And those are the kind of disciples that God is calling us to make. And with this comes the gift of understanding. There's this sense of conviction and an urgency that you pray out to God. God responds and says, hey, I've done it. (laughs) I've done it. But when you begin to understand what he's done, there's this understanding. After seeing both your condition clearly and crying out to God for help, then you begin to understand the reality of the cost of the cure. That's what this passage goes on to say. Look at Zechariah chapter 10, chapter 12, verses 10 and 11. I'll pour out a spirit of grace and prayer over them. Then they will... And I love how the message says this. They'll then be able to recognize me as the one they so grievously wounded. That piercing spear thrust. And they'll weep. And oh, how they'll weep. Deep mourning as a, of a parent grieving for the loss of their firstborn. Isn't that amazing? 500 years prior to this, this passage would say this? I don't care if it was even written some... People on a liberal end say, oh, it was, it was later than that. I don't care if it was 200 years later. That's pretty accurate. 
And then verse 11 says, The sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem at that time will be even greater than the grievous mourning of the godly king Josiah who was killed in the valley of Megiddo. Well, all that's about is the last good king they remembered before they were actually put into captivity after years and years and years and years of prophets coming, talking about the need to change, the conviction and, and constantly rejecting the grace of God, constantly not wanting to cry out in urgency for God's help. Finally, this good Josiah king who is like David unto himself dies and the whole people of Israel are mourning because of the good king that died. So that's this idea of here is this one you mourn like a firstborn son. Here is this one you you mourn because he was such a good king. And then 12 through 13, all of Israel will weep in profound sorrow and the whole nation will be bowed down with universal grief. King, prophet, priest, and people. Each family will go into their private mourning, husbands and wives apart to face their Sorrow alone, both public and private, will happen. It basically, the, the idea here is every strata of society will be impacted. On this great day, the bad news of our sin, as he goes on here, becomes the good news of God's love. There is a purpose for these three gifts, and in this response, there is a purpose because God wants us to live as people who have been fully clean, to begin to realize that the bad news is really good news. The fact that he sees the sin and he allows me to see it, and the fact that I cry out for him to help, and he says, here, help is here, it's on its way. In fact, it's already happened here in history, and now he just says, here's what I want you to know about this. Look at the very last thing. All these things lead to the gift of faith. Zechariah 13.1. On that day, on that great day, a fountain, think of like the Holy Spirit forming within you, will be opened for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jesus, for the people of God, a fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and impurity. On that big day, God will open a fountain of cleansing and every impurity and stain of selfishness will be removed. And Jesus gives you his heart because he works on your heart. He's not a God that just comes and says and just punishes you. He works on your heart to begin to start saying, I need a heart change. And when that happens, he wants you to realize all of this, this good doctor, our father, is doing it because he deeply loves you. And he wants you to experience him and his peace and his fullness, even in the midst of this difficult world, even in the midst of darkness and confusion and grief. He wants you to live with him. And he wants to give his life for your life. And he wants you to know, here's the act of faith. It is merely through believing in what he has done for me that I have been made clean, that I have been forgiven. And here's the act of faith. It's not only that. He actually gives you his lifeblood to flow through you because it will transform your life if you're willing to grab hold of his hand and receive his love and walk in that. I'm going to ask you to stand. Just, God, I'm just in your presence right now. I just go, I was just wrestling in my heart yesterday about how do I help two little guys who I so, so deeply love understand I love them and I want to be connected to them. And yet I love them so much that 
there's some things that need to be dealt with and they're so young and they don't understand it. And there's people here who are, this is maybe somewhat new and you're trying to understand it. I promise you the Holy Spirit of God will walk with you and give you complete understanding. But if you know in your heart right now, if you are very much aware and your heart's just crying out for help, it could be in your personal life. It could be in your marriage. It could be in your work situation. I don't know where it is. And you're just crying out with an urgency. This is God, I need you. Fill me. Forgive me. And some of you might be saying, forgive me again. And again and again and again. And God says, I have. It's been done once and it's once for good. It's for all, right? And he wants you right now to receive his love. So I'm going to ask you in this just moment, you just, if you feel like you want to do it, if it's weird, you don't, but you, you maybe just put your hands out like you're just cupping them, like you're going to, you're going to catch some water from a fountain or something. And just take them out there and say, God, I want to receive your love. And in a symbolic way, as I just allow you to pour into my hands, I want you to pour into my heart and my life. I want to receive your love. I want to walk in your forgiveness. I want to begin to walk with you day in and day out so that, God, you begin to change the habits, the reactions, the things within me that just cause other people pain and they just work against me. All you need to say is, Jesus, I receive you. I acknowledge this and I ask you to just enter into me, Holy Spirit. Just say, Jesus, I receive you into my heart and my life. And now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would just fill any heart who has opened their their hearts to you. I, I have to say this, too, as I'm just here in this time of prayer. Some of you are not going to receive God's love right now until you forgive yourself. It's really, it's really true. It's really important. If God's forgiven you, if Jesus has died on a cross and has been pierced and you see it in his word and you see it in, 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 in your life here, why would you ever continue to have... It's pride that keeps you from forgiving yourself. Just open your heart to him. Just tell him, you know what? I want your life in me. I am here seeking you to find you. I am here knowing you so that the want in me will grow every day to walk with you. Jesus, I pray, seal these these decisions made now and even some decisions that will be made as this week goes on. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.